Awesome. Let's turn over to John chapter 13. I was studying this last month, and God just laid this on my heart to share with you guys that are here. And we're going to be talking about the greatest commandment of love and God's kind of love. And this isn't talking about a physical love. This isn't in your relationship with your wife. This is just talking about God's kind of love to you and through you for other people. And I tell you, there is a real need, I believe, for scriptural teaching on God's kind of love because um, most people, love is considered to be just intuitive, that you just automatically know how to love. And you know what? That is not true. You can look at the divorce rate. You can look at all the strife that's in people's lives and tell that people don't just automatically know how to love. And sad to say, most people have not gone to the Word of God and have received their teaching on what love is all about through the Word of God. I remember that a man in one of my churches uh, came and he got born again. He and his wife, we were actually out in a park uh, holding a, a church gathering. And this guy and his wife came over begging food. And they had run out of gas in the Childress, Texas uh, park. And they were just destitute and they hadn't eaten in days. And so they were begging food. So we fed them and helped them. And anyway, it's uh, quite a story about how this happened. But they got born again, both of them. And it was a great conversion. But this guy caused so much strife in that church. He just, I mean, he was a pain, a royal pain. And uh, after a few months, he came to me and he says, I'm leaving. He says, this church is full of strife. I was better off in the world. And I said, well, you're correct that this church is full of strife. But I said, you're the instigator of it all. I said, it wasn't here before you came. I said, you have made everybody in this church mad with all the things that he did. And I didn't know how he was going to respond, but I just wanted him to see that it wasn't other people that was the problem. It was what was on the inside of him that caused so much strife, and and he was instigating it. And when I told him that, to my surprise, this guy humbled himself, and he looked at me, and he said, "Uh, I don't know how to love. I don't know what love is. And I, it just took me back. And he says, I'm the first person in the history of California to be indicted by the grand jury three times before I was 13 years old. He said, I lived in reformatories from the time I was five years old. He says, I've never had a family. I've never been loved. I don't know how to love. What are you talking about? And I didn't know exactly how to respond to that. And he said, if you were telling me to act well when I feel sick, I could do that because I felt well before. If you were asking me to act like I have money when I'm broke, I could do that because I've had money before. But he says, you're telling me that I'm supposed to love? What is love? I've never been loved. I've never loved anybody before. And he was sincere. And it just took me back. And I realized that not everybody came from a background where they were taught love and where they were raised in a godly atmosphere. And many of us have been through things in our life that have soured us and made us bitter, etc. And anyway, because of all of this, I don't think that there is a clear um, guide on exactly what God's kind of love is like. And so um, I'm not going to 
correct all of that this weekend, but I want to share some things with you that I think could make a huge, huge difference in your life. You know, you can't give away something that you don't have. And there are many of us that are trying to love your mate, to love your children, to love people and to be a blessing. And you can't do it because you, first of all, have never received it. And we have not understood God's kind of love for us. And so I just want to use what Jesus did right here in the 13th chapter of the book of John to just share some things about the supernatural God kind of agape type love. That's a word in the Greek. And I think that this could really, really impact you. So I'm going to read uh, eventually all of this 13th chapter of the book of John. In verse 1, John 13, 1, it says... Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And supper being ended, the devil, having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he was come from God and went to God... Now, those verses are important because it says that he knew all of these things and that he knew that God the Father had put all things into his hands. Jesus was God manifest in the flesh. He was not a man who just uh, represented God. He was God in physical body, and he had all of the glory of the Father. It was his time, and yet with all of this glory and majesty, Jesus uh, rose from supper laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. You know, we could probably spend a lot of time talking about this, but again, to really get the full impact of this, you have to understand that Jesus was God manifest in the flesh. He's the one that for eons from the beginning, all of the angels worshipped him. And yet he, in a physical body, took a towel and girded himself and began to minister and wash the feet of his disciples. Man, that's awesome. That is awesome. You know, this is totally opposite the way that people operate. Jesus even made note of this in, I think it was the 10th chapter of Matthew, talking to his disciples. He says, among the people in the world, you rec- those who are great exercise dominion over you, but it's not going to be that way among you. He that will be greatest in the kingdom will have to learn to be least. In other words, in God's system, the way up is down. It's exactly inverted from this world. And again, brothers, many of us have been taught all of our values by maybe even godly people, people who are good people, but there are very few people that have this attitude that will humble themselves and put other people ahead of themselves. And yet here's the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, humbling himself and washing the feet of people. Even as we go through this, you'll see one of them was Judas Iscariot. He didn't just wash the feet of people who were worthy of it, people who would yield and give up their life for him. Every one of these disciples in just a matter of hours, and it says that he knew all things that were going to come upon him. And so not only did Judas Iscariot betray him, but every one of his disciples forsook him and fled. Peter, it's mentioned about his three uh, denials where he renounced the Lord. But Peter isn't the only one. Every single disciple 
ran from Jesus. Let me just, if you could somehow or another put yourself in Jesus' place, and if you came to this earth, and if you had served these men, and you'd spent three and a half years discipling them, and you had treated them perfectly and done nothing but good to them, and then in your greatest hour of need, they all turn on you and flee. One of them sells you out for 30 pieces of silver. The others, Peter swears with an oath that he had never seen the man before, and every single one of them fled. If you knew people were going to treat you that way, would you still take a towel and gird yourself and kneel down and wash these people's feet, even the people you, who you knew, every single one of them was going to fail you? There's not very many of us that would do that. And yet here's God Almighty serving these people with perfect knowledge of what they'd do. You know, you could just expand on this. Uh, the scripture says that he knows the end from the beginning. And uh, Christ was slain from the foundation of the world, is what the scripture says. So that means that God knew that mankind was going to turn against him. He knew what would happen. And yet he created us and gave us a free will and put us in a position knowing all of the tragedy that would come out of that, knowing that that would cost him his son, and he did it anyway. I've thought on that a lot, and I honestly, I can't even comprehend. If, if I somehow was God and knew that the creation that I was going to create was going to do all of the terrible things that had been done on the face of this earth, man, I think I might have said, uh, I'm not going to do it. And yet, God loved us so much that for those of us who have responded and have received salvation to Him, it was worth it to endure the Holocaust, all of the terrible things that have happened, the hurt, the pain, everything. It's worth it just for those who would receive and uh, receive His salvation. Man, that's awesome. That is a supernatural God's kind of love. And many people think, well, man, I just can't operate that way. I'm going to share with you throughout this series that God has placed on the inside of you that supernatural love. This isn't something that's out there that you have to try and obtain unto and work to. And if you do things just right, then God will bless you back with this love. It's already on the inside of you. It's not a matter of getting God to release that love. He's already released it. You have to receive it. And then you have to understand it and begin to start releasing it. But the truth is, God's already put this on the inside of you. God has already commended His love toward us. Man, that's awesome. So what the Lord did for His disciples right here, He's done something much, much greater for every one of us. He's laid down His life. And so it says that He poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith He was girded. Then comes he to Simon Peter, and Peter said unto him, Lord, that, uh, dost thou wash my feet? Jesus said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Peter said unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. In other words, he didn't feel worthy to have the one who he knew. Je uh, Peter had already confessed, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Matthew chapter 16, verse 16. And so Jesus... Now, Peter knew that Jesus was God, and he wasn't going to let Jesus humble himself and serve him this way. If anything, he should be washing Jesus' feet. And here's Jesus' answer unto him. 
He said, if I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. In other words, if you don't let me serve you, if you don't let me minister unto you, then you can't have any relationship with me. And so Peter's response was, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. In other words, he had said, you're never going to wash my feet. And Jesus said, if I don't wash you, you have nothing to do with me. And he says, wash me from head to toe. Amen. (laughs) He wanted to be totally identified with Jesus. And Jesus responded by saying, he that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. And you are clean, but not all. For he knew who should betray him. Therefore, he said, "Ye are not all clean. So he was talking about Judas Iscariot, who was one of those that he washed his feet. So after he had washed their feet and had taken the garment and was set down again, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done unto you? You call me master and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and master, have washed your feet, ye ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done unto you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If you know these things, happy are ye if you do them. I speak not of y'all. I know whom I have chosen, but uh, that the scriptures may be fulfilled. He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you, before it come to pass, that when it is come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that receiveth, whomsoever I send, receiveth me. And he that receiveth me, receiveth him that sent me. Anyway, we'll come back to these scriptures and and read all of this. But this is a powerful passage of scripture where he's saying that I have set an example. If I'm your Lord and Master, and yet I have served you this way and humbled myself and treated people who are going to all forsake me, then I have set an example that this is the way that you should treat other people. Man, that's powerful. You know, we have some kind of an unwritten code, just a sense of justice on the inside of us that you treat people good who you think are worthy of it. But if they aren't worthy of it, you feel justified in treating those people poorly. And you know what? That's not the example that Jesus gave us. That is absolutely wrong. And I think that this is a reflection of the fact that this is what we've been taught, that God treats you good when you're worthy of it. And when you aren't worthy of it, then you expect God not to answer your prayers, not to bless you, etc. This right here shows that that is not true. Jesus treated the very people who were going to crucify him and forsake him and all these other people. He treated them with love and with kindness. He even turned around to the very people who were crucifying them and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So if you really look at this, it's a wrong representation to think that God is giving you what you deserve, basing His actions with you on how good and how worthy you are. I could get plumb off my subject and spend the whole weekend preaching on grace right here, which most people do not understand. I'm trying to go a different direction, but really this is important. Most people think that God deals with you proportional to your performance. And so when you mess up, you expect the wrath of God. You expect to be separated from God. You expect to not get your prayers answered. 
And that's the way that you've been taught that God loves you. And so therefore you can't give away what you don't have. You treat other people that way because that's the way you think that God is treating you. But that is not true. That's not how Jesus treated his disciples right here. He knew that they would forsake them and yet he, he humbled himself and honored these people and served them like a slave would. And brothers, I'm telling you that regardless of how sorry you are, which some of you are offended that I would say you're sorry. Well, we're all sorry in our own way. Just varying degrees of sorriness, amen. The scripture says that they all forsook Jesus and fled. One of them sold him out for 30 pieces of silver. Peter swore with an oath that he had never seen him. John stayed in with the chief priest and identified himself with him to some degree, but all of them, Peter, James, John, Bartholomew, every one of them forsook him and fled. They all failed. All of us failed. There's not a person in here that deserves the goodness of God. And if you think that you have to earn and live up to some standard before God will treat you good, then that's the reason that you treat other people badly when they treat you badly. And here's a clue. You're, everybody's going to fail you sometime or another. You know, if you married your wife thinking that, oh, she's perfect and this is going to be the perfect mate, I can guarantee you after a while, you will be disappointed. Because there was only one perfect person and that was Jesus. Your mate isn't perfect. And your mate, you know, actually this puts tremendous pressure on a marriage when you think that the marriage has to be perfect and treat you just perfectly and that as long as they're doing what's right, then you're going to treat them right. Man, you will destroy a marriage doing that. I actually had a couple travel with me one time and do a marriage seminar and the man was the captain of the football team. He was the jock. He was the most handsome. He was voted most likely to succeed. He was just Mr. Perfect. The woman was the homecoming queen, a southern belle. I mean, they were just like Ken and Barbie. They were the perfect, perfect couple. And they got married, and this woman in the marriage seminar said that she thought he was just perfect. And then when she married him, their life would be perfect. And it wasn't. And her false expectation started a tremendous chain reaction in that marriage to the point he was a pastor and he got to where he was pastoring a church of two or 3,000 people and he was going up in his career, if you want to call ministry a career, he was succeeding. He was... Uh, he was a roommate in college with Adrian Rogers, who uh, became the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. And he was running in those circles and he was groomed to be the leader of all the Southern Baptists. And he was just growing in his career. And while everything was working good for him, his wife was so mad because she thought he was going to be Prince Charming and he was going to carry her on a white horse off into the sunset and they'd live happily ever after after. And she wasn't happy. Happiness doesn't come by your mate. It doesn't come by all of these natural things. A man's life doesn't consist in all of the abundance of the things that he had. And she had unrealistic hopes. She thought he was going to be perfect. And this guy was really about as perfect as anybody I've ever known. He was a, he was a good guy. But if you are looking for perfection, don't get married. 
because they aren't going to be perfect. They will have mistakes. And so she had unrealistic expectations. She got worse and worse and worse, began to go into depression. She did all kinds of things to embarrass him, got him kicked out of the pastorate because of the way his wife acted. She was just full of hate. He came home one day uh, from, the, um, from the church and she was standing behind the door with a pot of beans and dumped it all on his head. She would throw knives at him and do things. And just anyway, it's a long, long story. And finally, she was so depressed. She had heart problems. And uh, she went up on a Sunday morning in front of thousands of people and she threw the Bible on the floor and she says, all right, Mr. Holy Man, if you are so awesome, what about this scripture in James 5 that if you anoint with oil, the prayer of faith will save the sick? Why don't you anoint me with oil or don't you do that in this Baptist church? Put him on the spot right in front of everybody. So he says, if it's in the Bible, I'll do it. And he had people go search for oil and they couldn't find any oil. So somebody went and got the dipstick out of their car and brought it in. And they anointed her with motor oil in the search service. And uh, anyway, she got so mad that that week she went out and bought a gun, went to a rifle range, and she was searching for her heartbeat so that she could shoot herself in the heart and kill herself and get it over with and she wouldn't struggle. And while she was searching for her heartbeat, the Lord says, feel that heart? Her heart irregularity was healed. She got healed when he anointed her with motor oil. <laughs> Amen. So she fell down on her knees right on the rifle range and she got turned on to the Lord and she quit looking to her husband to make her complete. And she looked to God and as a result, God put their marriage back together and and it was awesome, the things that they did. But, I, you know, all of that comes because there's a lot of people that think that I'll love you and you're perfect. And she thought this guy was perfect. He's about as close as you can come and still be human. And yet he still failed. He wasn't perfect. And there are many of us that only treat other people well when we think that people deserve to be treated well. And that is exactly the opposite of what Jesus was teaching right here. He knew that every one of these people were going to fail him to one degree or another, and yet he humbled himself and showed love and compassion and served them. Isn't that awesome? You know, if you just took this one point that I've made right here, and if you could go home, you can't do it in yourself, but if you would let the Holy Spirit work this in you, did you know that this right here would probably change every marriage? It would change your relationships at work. It would change your relationships in your family and other things if we would just start giving people love and sowing love and kindness instead of giving people what they deserve. If you'd go to the very person that hates you at your work and treats you the worst and do something special, just help them to succeed. I guarantee you, you could win people over. Jesus went on to say, I'm going to skip a few verses, but go on down here in... Um, In verse 31, it says, Therefore, when he was gone out, Jesus said, this is talking about after Judas left, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God be glorified in him, God shall also glorify him in himself and, and shall straightway glorify him. Little children, yet a little while am I with you. 
You shall seek me, and I, as I said unto the Jews, whether I go, you cannot come. So now I say unto you, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one to another. He didn't say that by this will all men know that you are my disciples if you dress a certain way. You know, that people, we have all these religious standards that people have to, you know, if you're a certain denominational thing, you have to have a beard. You have to let your hair grow and you have to dress old and you can't uh, use electricity. You have to ride buggies and things like this. Women, they, they can't cut their hair. They have to uh, not wear jewelry and do all of this. And we have all of these religious forms. Some people turn their collar around backwards to show you that they're holy and stuff. This says, here's how people distinguish that you are called by my name, and that is that you have love one for another. That is the distinguishing characteristic. The first century church didn't have television, which I use. I'm not against it. But they didn't have television. They didn't have the Internet. You know, right now we've doubled the number of people that we're reaching by using the Internet here tonight. They didn't have books. They didn't have CDs. They didn't have iPods and all of the, I don't know what all these other things are. They didn't have any of this stuff. And yet in 30 years, the first century church coming from a group of 12 people, starting with that, went and changed the known world. In 30 years, the known world was evangelized. And you know how it was? It was because they walked in a supernatural love. And this is not the distinguishing characteristic. Again, you can nearly look at a person. You can look at a many religious people and tell what they are by the way they dress, by certain things about them. And it's not based on how they interact with other people. That hasn't been the emphasis. But this is what Jesus said. This is how all men will know that you are my disciples by your love one for another. Love is something that no other religion on the face of the earth really even comes close to. You can come into any religion and they will have dogmas, they will have rituals, they may fast, they may pray, they may do all of these things, but love is not a distinguishing characteristic. And sad to say, even of a lot of Christians, it's not a distinguishing characteristic. If you want to see some mean people in fights, man, get in the middle of a church fight. Get Christians angry at each other. It's terrible. And yet it ought to be just the opposite. Just the opposite. And so all of these things are said, not to condemn anybody, but to say that, man, we need a lesson on love. Jesus is giving a lesson right here that very few people sitting in this room would have treated people that you knew were going to hurt you and forsake you and be embarrassed to even be associated with you. You would not turn around and love people like this. And yet that's the kind of love that Jesus had. And he said this in verse 34. He says, A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. And this is what I want to spend the rest of my time during this uh, thing is talking about how did God love us? How did Jesus love us? Because he gave us a new commandment that we are supposed to love one another the way that he loved us. Man, that is powerful. 
That is awesome. Look in the 22nd chapter of the book of Matthew, and let me just give you some other scriptures. I'll be referring to these throughout this whole thing. Matthew chapter 22, and in verse 36, Jesus was asked the question, which was the greatest commandment in the law? And here's what Jesus said in verse 37. Jesus said unto them, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And that's a powerful statement. Jesus said, loving God and loving your neighbor are the things that hold every other command in the Word of God on this. You know, it's like if you had a wall here, and if you wanted to hang up one of these banners or something on the wall, you have to put something, some kind of an anchor, a screw, or something to hang that thing on. You can't just put it on the wall, and it holds. You have to have something to hang it on. And the thing that upholds all of the Word of God, all of the commandments of God are this commandment about loving God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and loving, loving your neighbor as yourself. Everything else in the Word of God is dependent upon those two things. That's what Jesus said. Look at this in Romans chapter 13. This is the exact same thing said by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 13. And in verse 8, it says, Owe no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. For this, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment that is... Um, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Man, those are powerful statements. Look back in verse um, 9. It says, for, thou, uh, for, for this thou shalt not commit adultery. Did you know if you truly loved God with all of your heart, and if you loved your neighbor as yourself, your wife, if you loved your wife, the way that you loved yourself, you would never, ever commit adultery. Adultery is super, super selfish. You know, I'm not saying this to condemn anybody. Out of this many men, I can guarantee you there's somebody in here that has committed adultery. And I am not saying any of this to condemn any person, but I'm saying it to try and get to the root of things. See, people are sitting there trying to say, oh, I have this lust and I just am struggling so hard and you're trying to resist lust. What you need to do is understand, first of all, how much God loves you. And if you ever receive that love, I don't have the words to convey this, but my testimony is that when I understood how much God loved me, I instantly loved other people. I don't know how that works exactly, but once you ever get a glimpse of God's love for you, you fall in love with other people. To this day, I have people that hate me and would say things about me, and they've done things that in the natural, I have a justification for being mad at them and maybe doing something to them, but 
Once you've understood how much God loves you, it, I just don't have it in me to be mad at people. I really don't. I know some of you are looking at me strange. I, again, I don't have the words for this, but it's like Jesus taught this in the 18th chapter of the book of Mar, uh, Ma, um, Matthew. He says, if a man is forgiven 10,000 talents, and then he turns around and takes somebody who owes him 10 talents, and he just refuses to forgive him and throws him into jail, he says, man, how inequitable is that? He says, I forgave you this huge amount. You should have forgiven your neighbor over here who, get, who uh, did a relatively insignificant offense against you. If you are having trouble forgiving people, I know that some of you are going to swallow hard on this, but just stick with me. <laughs> if you are having trouble forgiving your wife, forgiving your children, forgiving people that work with you, forgiving family members, forgiving somebody who's done something to you, it's because you do not understand how much you've been forgiven. If you ever saw and understood how much God forgave you, it is not hard to forgive somebody else who has done a relatively insignificant thing to you. And some of you are thinking, it's not insignificant. Well, you're comparing it to other people. But you compare to what we did to God that he had to send his only son and come here and die and suffer and go through all of this, I can guarantee you what you have done to God is infinitely worse than what any person has ever done to you. And when you get a revelation of this, and once you understand forgiveness, and once you receive it, it is so easy to turn around and forgive other people because of how you have been forgiven. If you are struggling forgiving people, it's because you are struggling to understand that you're forgiven. Amen or oh me. And so some of you are looking at the other person and thinking, well, if they just do this, then I could forgive him. For forgiveness has nothing to do with the other person. It doesn't matter if the other person ever repents or not. Now, don't get me wrong, and I'm going to try and balance this before the week's out. This is not saying that you just act as if nothing has happened and that you trust people. If, if an employee did something wrong, you know what? I'll forgive them. I'm not going to let anybody rent space in my mind. I am not going to carry around bitterness and be in turmoil and stuff over this. I'll forgive anybody. I don't care what they did. But you know what? If they did something wrong, I'm not going to put them in a position of leadership so that they can reproduce that thing. I don't just treat them as if nothing has ever happened. Sometimes you have to treat a person differently. If your children do something wrong and if they've gone out and uh, done things wrong, you may have to take some privileges away from them. But you aren't doing it because you're doing it to punish them and get even with them and you're uh, full of bitterness and unforgiveness. You're doing it to teach them and to train them and you're doing it for their benefit. It's not selfish. I'm not talking about that you just act as if everybody loves you and you make yourself vulnerable to people who are going to misuse you. I had a man in this Bible school who um, taught in this Bible school and was a very good friend. He's still a good friend of mine. But anyway, one time I came in and he just got in the flesh and he started screaming and ranting and raving in front of about, I'd say, half of my staff was in this room and he started saying, you're a liar, you're a crook. He accused me of everything that you could say and none of it was true. But he just blasted me and let me have it. 
And anyway, long story, but after a couple of weeks, I just came to him and I said, you know what? Um, I think you aren't satisfied being here. You're a problem. I think it's time for you to leave. That's what I was going to tell him. But before I could tell him, he says, I'm quitting. And I said, I think that's a good deal. And I gave him six months salary and sent him out and blessed him. And I'm still friends with him today. And I send him money and I help him. And so I'm not mad at him. I don't have any unforgiveness. But he has come to me a number of times. Can I come back and teach in the Bible school? And I said, no, you can't teach in the Bible school. (laughs) Well, why not? I thought you forgave me. And I said, I did forgive you. But why do I want to put somebody as emotionally unstable as you are in front of these people to pollute these people with the same things you got? I hadn't got a thing against him. I've given him tens of thousands of dollars in offerings. I hadn't got a thing against this guy, but I'm not stupid enough to take somebody like that and put them in to where a place where they could influence people and sour other people. Everybody understand what I'm saying? So when I'm saying that you forgive everybody, that doesn't necessarily mean that you let other people take advantage of. There's wisdom in how to do things, but I hadn't got a thing against a single person on the face of the earth. There's people that have done things to me, but I'm not mad at them. And you can walk in forgiveness. You can give forgiveness if you've received it. But if you haven't received it, that's the reason that you're struggling to receive. So it's not what the person has done to you. It's the fact that you need a revelation of God's love for you. If you ever understood, if you ever experienced supernatural love and forgiveness for you, you would have an easy time turning around and loving other people. Man, that's, that's powerful. And that's what I'm believing is going to happen during this weekend. I know that there's some of you that don't really have that. You have a conditional love that if I'll do everything right, then God will love me. And as long as I don't make a mistake, God will love me. But boy, mess up and you just think that God is an angry God that's going to punish you, that won't answer your prayers, that won't fellowship with you. Many of you are basing it on the way you were raised. Maybe this is the way your father was. In a sense, I'm really blessed that I grew up without a father because I don't have a bad image. Man, I turned to the Lord and Jesus became my father. It says in Psalms chapter 27 that when your father and mother forsake you, the Lord will take you up. And man, when my dad died, that's what I turned to. And God became my father. And because of it, I don't have a bad image of a father. I wasn't taught any of this stuff. And some of you may have all kinds of things that you were punished severely when you messed up and you have just translated that to God and you think that this is the way God is and then religion comes along and reinforces it and tells you, yes, that is the way that he is. And man, if you do good, God will love you, but you do bad, God will put cancer on you. God will let you suffer. God isn't going to prosper you. The reason you're suffering is because you've done all of these things wrong. I can tell you, all of that is wrong. That is not true. God is not giving you what you deserve. And these examples right here should prove that. And so anyway, I got off on all that by saying, Thou shalt not commit adultery. If you really had experienced God's love for you, first of all, you wouldn't be looking for love in an illicit relationship. You would be content with the person that God gave you. And if you love not only God, but if you loved your neighbor as yourself, which includes your wife, you would never, never, ever do something to hurt your mate. Adultery is so selfish. 
It is one of the absolutely most selfish things that you can do. If you're hooked with pornography, pornography is super selfish. You aren't thinking about anybody but yourself. It's just stupid. Amen? Amen. Quiet in here. You need to hear this because, again, people think, oh, I just got this demon of lust. No, what you've got is you don't understand the love of God. You don't, you've never received a revelation of his love for you. And you are just absolutely consumed in yourself. And you could go through every one of these things. I'm taking too much time with this. But it says, thou shalt not kill. You would never kill another person if you loved your neighbor as yourself. That is an absolutely selfish act. It says, thou shalt not steal. Why would you ever steal from a person? Now, I was talking to someone today who's been in prison for stealing. And they've had some things happen and people file things on them. And they, now their credit is ruined, not because of anything they did, but because of what other people did. And they said, now I know how those people I treated, how they felt. You know what? It is a super selfish thing. You don't care about a person. You're just thinking about yourself. You make yourself God when you steal. And that's true of uh, stealing from an employer. It doesn't have to necessarily be going and robbing a bank, but just not giving them a good day's wage, not serving people, criticizing them. There's just all kinds of ways that people steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. This doesn't say that you shall not lie. It includes not lying. But did you know you can bear false witness without lying? You can say something about a person that may not be a lie, but you're just repeating gossip. Say, for instance, with all of the uh, presidential people going on, they're, they're coming out with things now and they're saying that it, they're accused of this. You don't know if it's true or not, but you'll sit here and repeat it and you will influence people's opinion about a person not even knowing if what you're saying is true. And if it turns out not to be true, then you bore false witness. You may have never lied. You may have told what you heard, but you bore false witness. You could misrepresent your product. And you don't ever have to tell an out-and-out lie. But just don't tell that, you know what, this isn't really a good product. This product over here is better, but you aren't going to tell any of the comparisons that make you look bad. You're going to present everything in a way that you give a false representation to the situation. You know what that is? That's false witness. And people do that because they're just after their commission. They're trying to make it to the top. They don't care what anybody else thinks. They don't care about anybody else. This is the way it gets done. There's a lot of people that this is the way that they do business. Amen or oh me. We're dealing with contractors now and praise God, we got a Christian contractor. What a deal. And he's proven himself. He's already done a couple of things, come in ahead of schedule and under budget and so praise God for him. But you know, I've been in contracting business, not as the contractor, but a laborer. And I know that people will bid this and tell you this is what the materials are and here's the labor. And the truth is in those materials, there's also a lot of stuff and you're bearing false witness and you're misrepresenting things. My brother went to get a job at a mechanic place for one of the major uh, automakers. And when he went to that uh, car dealership, they told him, here is your base salary and then you get 30% of everything you overcharge people or everything that you can get them to get fixed on their car that doesn't need to be fixed. 
And did you know that I can prove right here in Colorado Springs that that's the way at least two dealerships that I know of hire their people. They hire them and expect them to do work on cars that isn't needed because people don't know what they're doing and telling them they need it. And they aren't totally lying. They will need it within 100,000 miles or whatever. But you know what? That's false witness. And, and that's because people don't love other people the way they would like to be loved themselves. I tell you, every problem that it lists right here, every problem in the human race, if you loved God first and you loved other people more than you loved yourself, did you know that there would be no murders, killing, no adultery, there wouldn't be any arguments, there would be zero need for lawyers, we would get rid of all kinds of things, it would solve the problems of the world, and this is what Jesus brought to us. He brought us a love that if we could get a revelation of it, receive it, and then begin to start walking in this love, it would solve every single problem. Some of you think, well, if I just had a queen for a wife, I'd be okay. Well, if you gave your wife a king for a husband, most of them would rise to the occasion. And so don't sit there and demand that other people start doing things right before you do what's right. If you would lay down your life and love other people the way that Christ loved us, I guarantee you it would solve every single problem. Every single problem. Every one of them. Man, that's powerful. These are powerful verses. Look over in 1 John chapter 2. This is the same man who wrote the gospel of John. And he's the only one that recorded this about the new commandment and Jesus washing the disciples' feet. In 1 John chapter 2, in verse 1 it says, My little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Notice he didn't say that if you sin... We have a judge in heaven who's going to even the scale. He'll get even with you. No, we have an advocate, Jesus. He's there as our lawyer, always making intercession for us. And even if you don't believe in yourself, you ought to believe in the ministry of Jesus, that he's standing there on your behalf. And even though you aren't what you should be, Jesus is constantly interceding and he's never lost a case. You are never, never, never under condemnation from God. And he is the propitiation. That means the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him and keepeth not his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. You know, I haven't got time to go into this fully. Let me just say this very quickly. I pray that you will study this out and get it on your own. But this is an indication of what I call spiritual dyslexia. Dyslexia is where you see things backwards. Religion is where you get spiritual dyslexia from. And it causes us to see things in reverse. People read these verses in verses 3 and 4 where it says, This is how we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He that saith that knoweth him and keepeth not his commandment is a liar and the truth isn't in him. And so people look at that and say, well, I want to know God, so what do I have to do? I'm going to keep his commandments and that will cause me to know God. That's spiritual dyslexia. That is the opposite of what he's saying. 
This isn't saying that if you would keep the commandments, it will cause you to know God. This is saying the exact opposite, that you can tell when a person knows God because keeping the commandments is the byproduct of knowing God. It is not the step to knowing God. And yet the church as a whole is preaching, do right and then you'll become right. But the message of the the true gospel is that you receive being right with God through faith in a Savior, and you let this love come on the inside of you, and I can guarantee you, you will keep the commandments. You will not go commit adultery. If you love God and if you love your wife more than you love yourself, you'll never commit adultery. You would never steal from a person if you loved other people more than you love yourself. You can tell whether or not a person has experienced the love of God. It will be manifest in their life. And so from this, again, most people have this spiritual dyslexia and they say, well, then you're talking about holiness. You got to be holy in order to receive God from God. No, it's the exact opposite. Holiness is not a root of salvation. It's the fruit of salvation. Holiness isn't what produces relationship with God. It comes as a byproduct of relationship with God. I know that some of you, you're just looking at me with this blank stare because again, this goes right over the head of most people. It is so ground into us, a performance-based relationship. Everything is based on how well you perform. And especially when I'm talking to guys, did you know that this is, if you ask the average person, who are you? They're going to tell you what they do. They're going to define themselves by their actions. And that's the way that nearly all of us have been taught. But you are a human being, not a human doing. It is not what you do that makes you who you are. It's really who you are is at your core level. And and for the Christian, you ought to find your identity in Christ. But yet most of us define ourselves by what we do. We're so focused on our actions. And when it comes to our relationship with God, you have to do or you feel like God's going to reject you. This is so ground into us that you read verses like this and you just miss what he's saying. The book of 1 John is confusing to a person that hasn't understood that salvation and relationship with God comes completely by grace and not based on performance. Because... 1 John is written to counter the Gnostics, people who are claiming to have had a relationship with God, but it wasn't genuine. It wasn't real. They were, they were like tares among the wheat. And so he began to start saying, here's how you tell. You look at their actions. And from that, people think, well, then this means that in order to be a Christian, you've got to live like this. No, that's not what this is saying. But this is saying that if you are truly born again, that will influence your actions. You can tell who's really in relationship with God by how they act. If you aren't acting right, don't sit there and work on your performance. Go to your heart and say, God, if I'm not acting right, that's because my heart isn't right with you. I do not understand your love for me. If I understood your love for me, and if I received that love, I would not be treating people the way that I'm treated. I wouldn't be dealing with this lust if I was absolutely full of your love. Brothers, I don't know how to say this to you any differently than what I'm doing. But this is powerful and it's something that every person in here needs. I was 18 years old when I encountered the love of God. I I knew that God loved me. If you would have asked me, I would have said, yes, God loved me. I I told people 
that God loved them, but I didn't have an experiential revelation of it. And on March the 23rd, 1968, God revealed His love to me and made it clear that it had nothing to do with my performance. And I mean, I was overwhelmed with God's love. And instantly, my actions, it went into like overdrive. It's like a booster kicked in. I had been doing certain things that were quote unquote holy, but I was doing it really for myself and to be accepted with people. And I got every Sunday, they'd have me stand up in front of the church and give me a pat on the back about how many people I led to the Lord. I was leading two and three people a week to the Lord, quote unquote. But I was doing it all for me. I was doing it all so that I could get recognition. I was trying to do enough so that God would love me and God would answer my prayer. And yet I had no uh, confidence. I had no real relationship. I was born again, but I didn't have any intimacy with the Lord. I was always trying to earn it and perform it. And on March the 23rd, God showed me what a hypocrite I was and how self-righteous I was. I humbled myself expecting God to kill me. And instead of killing me, I experienced a tangible love of God for at least four and a half months. I was just caught up in the love of God. And instantly, I began to love people and study the Word and pray and do things that I had done, but I had done them in small measure as something I forced out of me. Now, it was like an artesian well. It was just bubbling out of me. I couldn't contain it. Again, I wish I had better words to describe this, but I'm telling you that if you ever understand the love of God, you will not have to sit there and through gritted teeth say, I will love this person. I am going to study the word. I will go to church. Man, you experience God's love, and I guarantee you it'll be impossible to hold you back. And one of the reasons that it's so hard to live for God is because people don't know how much God loves them. If you had a revelation of how much God loves you, man, you'd give up everything. I'd give up anything. I'd give up chewing bubble gum. I'd give up breathing if I thought that that would please God. And there's a lot of people that don't have that attitude because they just haven't experienced God's love. So anyway, going on in verse 5, it says, But whosoever keepeth his word in him, verily is the love of God perfected. This does not mean that keeping the word makes love be perfected in your life. It's saying that if God's love is perfected, then it will be reflected by you keeping the word. That's opposite of the way most people read this verse. Hereby know we that we are in him. He that uh, say, uh, let's see, he that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk even as he walked. Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment which you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, Because the darkness is past and the true light now shineth. Well, most people think, what does that mean? He just said in verse 7, I'm not writing a new commandment. And then in verse 8, I am writing a new commandment. Which is it? It's both. The new commandment is to love God and love your fellow man. 
That's what Jesus said over in the 13th chapter, a new commandment I give unto you. But it's really nothing except the old. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery. All of those things are a result of loving God. In the Old Testament, people didn't get born again and they couldn't have the Spirit of God living on the inside of them and they could not experience the love of God as you and I can. And so in a sense, it's like a little child who doesn't have the capability of understanding uh, adult things. You can't take a one-year-old and say, you quit stealing. You quit, being, you quit arguing with your brother and sister. You do this and this and this because if you don't do that, you're going to ruin your marriage. You'll never be able to hold down a job because people, you are, it's all going to be about you. And if you try and tell a one or two-year-old things about marriage and about their job and their education and when they're 60 years old, they just can't get it. But you can tell a kid this, says, you go over there and take that toy again, and I'm going to give you a spanking. And they may not even know there is a God or devil, heaven or hell, but they know what a spanking is, and, you, and they will resist that, that sin and that urge to do something wrong because of fear of punishment. In a sense, that's the way that God dealt with people under the old covenant. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, that the natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. You cannot understand the Word of God apart from the new birth and the Holy Spirit. People in the Old Testament weren't born again. They didn't have the Spirit of God residing on the inside of them. They didn't have access to revelation the way that you and I do. And so, in a sense, God had to treat them like a child that couldn't understand spiritual things. And he just said, you do that and I'll kill you. And people would say, I, I think probably I shouldn't do that anymore. <laughs> Amen. They didn't understand why. They didn't understand because it's not loving people and it's not loving God. But now the darkness is past and we are in the light. And now we don't have to go by all of the old commandment laws and rules and regulations. The only thing we need to do is understand how much God loves us and then turn around and share that in our relationship with other people. And so that's why he says it's not a new commandment. It's really the exact same thing. The results should be the same degree of holiness and the same godly living that you saw in the Old Testament. But it is new in the sense that now instead of doing these things in order to be right with God, we receive being right with God by faith. And now we do these things as a byproduct, a fruit of our relationship and not the root. Look in Hebrews chapter 8. This, is, uh, this will amaze some of you right here. But look in Hebrews chapter 8. In Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 6, But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, talking about Jesus had obtained a more excellent ministry uh, than the Old Testament priest who offered sacrifices. He's now a priest after the order of Melchizedek. By how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. But finding fault with them, he saith, and this is a quotation from Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31, 
Behold, the days cometh, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. In other words, there was nothing wrong with the old covenant. The covenant was okay. It was the people it was made with. Their sins broke it, and so they disqualified themselves. And so God had to make a new covenant that wasn't based on our performance. He based it upon what Jesus did, and all we have to do is put faith in him, and we get in on this covenant through his faithfulness. And so he said again in verse 9, Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. The way God does that is through love. God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5, 8. God gave us his love and love instantly tells you not to di- treat people this way, not to do this. This is how God wrote this, wrote this law in your heart is by revealing love to you. And again, my testimony is that when I fell in love with the Lord, when I understood how much he loved me, I immediately started loving other people and it caused me to start treating other people differently. It caused me to put other people ahead of myself. The love of God will just write the laws of God, how to treat people, which is what all of the laws are about. It will instantly do these things in your life. And instead of trying to have some formula You just fall in love with God and you will instantly fall in love with people and start living a godly life and start doing the right things. Boy, those are strong statements. And in verse 11, it says, And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. You know, there's a lot of theologians that complicate this and twist it and make it this huge statement about other things. I'm not going to get into that. But you know what I think this is basically just saying? That they shall not teach each other and say, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. This is saying that the experience of every born-again believer, you do not have to have somebody tell you about how God loves you and all of these things. You will experience it yourself. He will literally come into your life and shed abroad His love in your heart. And this won't be something that you have to take my word for. But every single person can experience this. Every single person should be overwhelmed with the love of God. And this is something that should not be something that we just do because we heard somebody else say it. It's because it's your own personal experience. Every one of us is supposed to experience this love of God. And then in verse 12, For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities while I remember no more. Boy, is that different than what most of us have heard. Most of us have heard that if you mess up, God is an angry God. God is a just God. God is a holy God. God's going to get you. God won't answer your prayers. If most of you pray for something and don't see it come to pass, the immediate thing you think of is, I must have some sin in my life. God won't answer my prayer if I got any sin in my life. 
This says he will be merciful to your unrighteousness and your sins and iniquities will he remember no more. And then in verse 13, in that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. So he's talking here, all of these verses are talking about he's going to make a new covenant, not according to the first covenant. And he said in the very fact that he says it is a new covenant, then that means that the first covenant is old and ready to vanish away. Now put that back with John chapter 13, verse 34. Let's go back to these verses. John chapter 13 In verse 34, a new commandment I give unto you. In that he said a new commandment, he has made the first commandments old and ready to vanish away. That's exactly what Hebrews chapter 8 said. The moment he said there's a new covenant, that means that the other covenant's out. The moment that he said a new commandment I give you, that means that the other commandments are out. Now does this mean that we don't Follow the Ten Commandments. It means that you don't live your life by them. You live your life by loving God, receiving His love, and loving your brother and sister. But if you truly get that revelation, you won't break a single one of the Ten Commandments. You will not worship any other God. You won't make a graven image and fall down to it. If you ever understand how much God loves you, you won't worship anyone but God. You will not steal. You won't lie. You will honor your parents. The Sabbath day is not talking about a physical day. It's talking about a relationship. Hebrews chapter 4 reveals that. There is a new covenant relationship called a Sabbath rest. You will honor that. You will rest in the Lord and not get into self-work and self-effort and try and do things on your own. You will receive from God. Man, these are awesome statements right here. But I'm trying to get across to you how important the love of God is. If we really understood that, and this is what I'm believing is going to happen during this weekend, that God is going to give us a revelation of how to love others the way that He has loved us. And if you can receive a revelation of how much God has loved you, then you will automatically fulfill all of the other things that you've been trying to do you will automatically start giving mercy and grace towards other people. If you're a mean, angry person, if you're a person that has a chip on your shoulder, and I mean all people have to do is very little to tick you off, then you know what? You don't understand the love of God. You aren't living in the love of God. Maybe you've heard about it. You might even tell other people and say that you believe in the love of God, but you aren't walking in it. Or I can guarantee you, you wouldn't have a short fuse. We'll be going through scriptures that show you all of these things. And so really, it just comes down to this. You need a revelation of how much God loves you. And the Word of God will give us that revelation, but the Holy Spirit has to quicken these things to you. And in my own life, I mentioned this briefly, but... I became a religious Pharisee. I was trusting in my own goodness. And as long as you are making your goodness a part of God's love, God's love is conditional upon you being good. As long as you think that way, you will never 
get a revelation of God's goodness. You will tie it to yourself. And the greatest thing about God's love is that he commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 8. It was before we did anything good. If I had time, you could have turned on over to 1 John chapter 5. And it says, herein is love, not that we loved him, but that he loved us. God loved you when you weren't lovely. And as long as you are still maintaining that, no, God loves me because I am a really awesome person. As long as you maintain that, you'll be blinded to the true love of God. Is that somebody's phone? <laughs> Praise God. <laughs> Thought we had an alarm going off. So you've got to, you've got to get over thinking that God loves you because of some goodness in yourself. And for the religious person or the person who's really performed very well, that's hard for you to let go of your own self-righteousness because you think, oh man, I've done so good. You can, only you can only look good compared to other people, but when you compare yourself to God's standard, all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God and you've got to turn from your own confidence in yourself and feeling like you deserve it and just ask for a revelation of God's unconditional love. And I guarantee you, once you get it, you'll never be the same. I read about Charles Finney, who had a relationship, and he said it was like waves of liquid love flowing over him. And I've often quoted that because what happened to me, it felt similar to that. Dwight L. Moody had a relationship where, man, he came face to face with the love of God. You can go through A.W. Tozer. You can go through any of the giants of the past and the way that they impacted their generation. And every one of them had a supernatural encounter with God where God just revealed himself and showed them how much he loved them. And I tell you, if you're going to be the person that God wants you to be, you need to experience that. And you know, the very first thing I want to do here tonight is it says in Romans chapter 5, it says that the love of God is shed abroad in our heart by the Holy Spirit that is given unto us. If there is any man here who has not received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which includes speaking in tongues, you need to receive that because that's when the love of God is shed abroad in your heart. You know, that night that I talked about, March the 23rd, 1968, is when I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I didn't know what it was called. I had been taught a little bit that speaking in tongues was of the devil, so I didn't speak in tongues that night because the Lord doesn't force you to speak in tongues. You know, I'm not speaking in tongues right now. I'm speaking in English because it's up to me. I can speak in tongues right now if I want to. I can speak in English. The Holy Spirit doesn't come on you and force you to speak in tongues. You have to choose. It says in Acts 2, 4, they spoke with other tongues as the Spirit gave them the utterance. So I had this dramatic encounter and the Lord put his love in my heart, but I didn't speak in tongues because I was taught against it and I wouldn't allow it. And it took me a period of time to get my mind renewed and figure out that speaking in tongues was a vital part of this. And it was actually, on my, in my instance, it was three and a half years later but I finally started speaking in tongues. And when I spoke in tongues, it's like I got filled with the Holy Ghost all over again. And I tell you, it is a vital part of it. And so if there is any person in here who has never experienced this baptism of the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues, I guarantee you for you 
to get a revelation of how much God loves you, you need the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And there's probably guys in here that are saying, well, I don't believe that's necessary. Well, I'm just telling you that's what happened with me. That's what the Word says, Romans 5, 5. The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. John chapter 14, 15, and 16, five different times. The Holy Spirit will testify of Jesus, will reveal things unto you. That verse I used earlier, 1 Corinthians 2, 14, you cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God with your mind. They are spiritually discerned. I could spend days and weeks talking about it, but it's my personal experience and it's my belief from the Word of God that you need a supernatural encounter with the Holy Spirit, separate from salvation. Salvation is absolutely essential, but the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a second thing. The disciples were born again and He told them to tarry until they receive power from on high. And when they received it, they spoke with tongues, and these men who were fearful and denied Jesus and ran and hid just a few days before, after they received the Holy Spirit, they stood boldly to the very people who crucified Jesus and threatened to kill them, and they said, you judge yourself which is right. Should we obey you, our God? And they stood there boldly, and the people said they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is what caused that. Jesus said, you receive power after that the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And so it's my testimony and the testimony of thousands of people that I know that this baptism of the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues is an absolutely essential part of receiving a revelation of God's love. Is there anybody in here tonight who doesn't have that and that you would like to receive it? If that's you, I want you to raise your hand and I want to pray with you. Here's one right here. Anybody else? Here's more back here. You know, out of this many men, there's bound to be a lot. I believe that there's probably more than what raised your hand. Some of you are probably thinking, what are you going to do? I'm going to pray with you, and I'm going to give you a free book. What a deal. I haven't got a church for you to join. I had not got anything for you to sign. We aren't going to take from you. We're going to give to you. Somebody says, well, what if I go up there and nothing happens? Well, I can guarantee you, if you don't come up here, nothing's going to happen. <laughs> you got nothing to lose. You got everything to gain. How many of you in here are already baptized in the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues? <laughs> so whether you knew it or not, you are in one of those meetings and... Uh, <laughs> You are the odd man out. You might as well get in on it, amen. Some of you have seen me on TV, and because I don't spit and shout and say, glory to God, you didn't realize you were coming to one of these meetings. But you're there now, and you know what? They are going to talk about you, so you might as well get something for it, amen. I'm telling you, this would change your life. It would really, really help you. So if you raised your hand or if you were supposed to raise your hand but didn't do it, would you just get up out of your seat and come forward? And we want to pray with you and help you to receive this baptism of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah.
I know somebody's thinking, do you have to have the Holy Spirit? You don't have to have the Holy Spirit. You could go to heaven without him. You can get there quicker because you aren't going to have any power in your life. You die of something along the way. You can go to heaven without the Holy Spirit, but why would you want to? The Holy Spirit is sent to give you power. It's a, he's a good thing. I tell you, praise God for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I can promise you this. This is going to change your life. Some of you are going to be just transformed and you won't even, you won't even be able to understand or explain the difference. But this is going to make a huge, huge difference in your life. I believe that. You know, before I can pray with you to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the scripture says that Jesus is the one who gives the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is the giver. The Holy Spirit is the gift. You have to receive the giver before you receive the gift. Is there anybody here who's not absolutely certain about whether or not you've been born again and Jesus lives in your heart? If you aren't sure about that, I need to pray with you first about that. And you need to receive the giver before you receive the gift. Anybody? If you aren't sure about your personal relationship with the Lord, raise your hand and let me pray with you about that because you can't receive the Holy Spirit until you receive Jesus. Anybody? You aren't sure? We'll pray with you. Anybody else? Anybody else? This is important. And you know what? There's a lot of people that think, well, I suppose that I'm a Christian. I mean, I'm a good person. I go to church. That doesn't make you a Christian. The Bible says that when you get born again, you have a witness in yourself and you know that you've passed from death unto life. If you don't know, you need to raise your hand and let us pray with you. If you aren't sure, you need to make sure. You receive the Holy Spirit in a sense. You can't get born again without the Holy Spirit, but there is a second experience. Like the disciples were born again, and yet he told them, wait until you receive the Holy Spirit. So there is a second experience with the Holy Spirit. But you do need to receive Jesus first. Anybody else? Are you absolutely sure you're born again? I'm not trying to talk you out of it, but you need to be sure. I'm not trying to plant doubt. I'm just saying that there's so many people that are assuming, and that's dangerous. Man, this is life and death. Okay, so we're going to pray with this brother, and I'd like everybody, I'm going to lead you in a prayer based on Romans 10, 9, and I'm going to say words similar to what you need to say. It says in Romans 10, 9, that if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is your Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. He's already died for your sins. He's already paid for them. It's not a matter of will he give. It's just a matter of will you receive. So I'm going to lead you in a prayer saying words similar to that. And if you will pray with me and believe this, you'll be born again right now. Isn't that good? That's awesome. Hallelujah. Let's have everybody pray this prayer so he won't feel like we're just sitting here listening to him. Let's everybody say this. Say, Father, Father I'm, sorry for my sin. I'm sorry for my sin. I believe Jesus died to forgive my sin. And I receive that forgiveness. Jesus, I make you my Lord. I believe that you live. That you, that you now live in me. I am saved. I am, saved. I am, forgiven. I am forgiven. In Jesus' name. In Jesus name. Amen. Amen. You believe that? Welcome to the family, brother. You're a brand new person.
Isn't that awesome? Hallelujah. I tell you what, that's one of the greatest miracles you'll ever, that is the greatest miracle you'll ever see right here. You know, on the outside, he still looks like the same man, but on the inside, he's a brand new creature. And according to the word of God, every person who has made Jesus your Lord, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And this is important because this means that that's what he created you for is to be a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit. So you don't, when we pray and ask for the Holy Spirit, I'm going to lead you in a prayer right now. And when we do this, you don't have to beg God. He created you to fill with the Holy Spirit. That's what you were made for. So he wants you to have the Holy Spirit more than you want to have him. So you don't have to beg. Some people will teach that you've got to be holy and that you've got to get all sin out of your life before the Holy Spirit will come. He won't fill a dirty vessel. I want you to know God hadn't got any other kind of vessel to fill. Amen. And it's like I was teaching tonight. The holiness, the good works are a byproduct of a relationship with God, not the way to relationship with God. So don't let some feeling of unworthiness stop you from receiving. God wants to give you the Holy Spirit. It's not a matter of him giving. It's a matter of you receiving. Amen. So I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And I'd like to ask some of our Bible college students that are all around here to come up behind you and they're going to lay hands on you because the Bible says that through the laying on of hands, the Holy Spirit was given. So these are all people who already have the baptism of the Holy Spirit and they will lay hands on you and release this power into you. So I'm going to lead you in a prayer and then they are going to lead, uh, lay hands on you and release this power into you. And then I want you to quit asking for the Holy Spirit and take a step of faith and thank Him that He gave you the Holy Spirit. Don't go by how you feel. Don't go by anything external because this is a spiritual thing and it's a matter of faith. Eventually, it will dramatically affect your emotions and change a lot of things. But right now, we aren't asking for a goose bump. We aren't asking for a feeling. We're standing on a promise. It says in Luke uh, 10, 13, it says, If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? That's a promise. And so we're going to ask and God's going to give. And I don't care what you feel like. I, after they lay hands on you, I want you to start thanking God for giving you the Holy Spirit. That's important. Just take a step of faith and go to thanking Him regardless. And then those of us that have the baptism of the Holy Spirit and speak in tongues, we're going to start speaking in tongues because the Bible says, 1 Corinthians fourteen seventeen, that when you speak in tongues... You're giving thanks well. You're praising God in a, in a heavenly language. You're bypassing all of the doubt and the unbelief that's in your brain and you're speaking out of your spirit, man, which is, is the part of you that's saved. It's powerful. Anyway, I hadn't got time to explain it, but we're going to start speaking in tongues. And as we start speaking in tongues, I want you to quit thanking God in English and just start thanking Him in tongues. And I know some of you think, well, I don't know how to speak in tongues. It doesn't force itself out of you. It's like I said earlier. You know, if I would have stood up here tonight and said, Oh God, speak through me and don't let me say anything that's not of you. And then if I had just opened up my mouth and waited on God to make it work, nothing would have happened. God didn't force me to say what I say. I believe He inspired it, but He didn't force it. I spoke. That's the reason it came out in Texan. 
That's the reason it came out with my sense of humor. It was me speaking, but it was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's the same thing when you speak in tongues. It says in Acts 2, 4, they spoke with tongues as the Spirit gave them the utterance or the inspiration. You have to speak and believe by faith that God is inspiring it. So don't just wait on the Holy Spirit to force you to speak in tongues. That's not how it happens. You have to, by faith, start speaking and believe it's the Holy Spirit. And I can promise you, after you get over the weirdness of it, the shock of it, the Holy Spirit will prove to you that this is Him inspiring it. It will produce great fruit in your life, and you can just speak in tongues. And it, it, I've got a book I'm going to give you that will explain the whole thing, and it'll help you a lot. But that's what we're going to do. And if you're ready, you can speak in tongues right now. Isn't that good? The Bible says believers will speak with new tongues. I want you to say, I'm a believer. And I will speak in tongues. Father, I thank you for all of these men. Thank you, Father. Thank you for this brother who got born again tonight. That he's totally changed on the inside. That old things are gone. All things have become new. Thank you that every one of us now are the temple of the Holy Spirit and that you created us to fill with your Holy Spirit. Right now, we just open up the doors of this temple and we welcome you, Holy Spirit, to come into every one of these lives. We want your power. We want you to reveal Jesus unto us and give us spiritual understanding and revelation and to shed abroad the love of God in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So we open up these doors and Holy Spirit come into our lives. Right now, we lay hands on you and say, receive the Holy Spirit. We loose this power and anointing of the Holy Spirit to flow into your life right now in Jesus' name. Thank you, Father. Boy, here's the power and the anointing of the Holy Spirit flowing into your lives. Now, I want you to begin to thank the Lord. Let's put your hands up. Like this, like when somebody sticks a gun in your back and you go, I surrender, yield right now and say, Father, I thank you that I have received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Thank you that from this moment on, I am filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm God possessed. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. Now, those of you who know how to pray in tongues, let's begin to worship the Lord and speak in tongues right now. And as we speak in tongues, you speak with us. Quit praying in English. You can't talk in English and tongues at the same time. And start speaking in this language. If you don't know what to say, you can try and say what you hear the person behind you saying. But your tongue will be unique to you. It won't be the same as anybody else. You can't say what they're saying. But it'll get you to talking if you try and say it. Just start. And then when it comes out different, keep talking. Keep talking and don't worry about what it sounds like. When a little kid starts talking, it doesn't sound like they're saying mama and daddy, but I can guarantee you that parent knows what they're saying. Your heavenly father is listening to your heart right now. He inhabits the praises of his people. Thank you, Jesus. Speak loud enough that you can hear yourself. Talk. Don't be bashful with it. Just forget yourself and talk to the Lord right now in a language that the Holy Spirit is giving. 
Ora sige i viara solonon bakara ni tirana makorlonon berente. Beta chikaramarontolonon mokoria sikela vakorlonon bananta. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Father, I thank you that you are helping people to verbalize, to release this power, to give voice to what you're doing in their life. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. Hallelujah. Praise God. Let me have your attention here for just a minute. Many, many, many of these men are praying in tongues. Amen. Isn't that great? You know, I know many of you are thinking, I don't have a clue what I just said. What is this all about? That's the reason it is so powerful is because it's going past your natural mind and you're getting into the spirit. This makes no sense to your physical mind. And that is the very reason that it's so powerful. Amen. I've got a book that I wrote on this and I'd like to give it to every one of you. And also, let me just say that if you, for whatever reason, did not speak in tongues, it doesn't mean that you didn't receive. God promised you he would give you the Holy Spirit. Right now, I'm not speaking in tongues, but I've got him. And so you have the Holy Spirit because you asked. You just need to receive and get past this uh, fear that you have about speaking in tongues. When I first received the Holy Spirit, it took me three and a half years to speak in tongues, but that's because I was a Baptist. And I had been taught that it was of the devil, and I just had so many fears that I wouldn't allow myself to speak. And it took me a while to get my questions answered, but I have gotten them answered. I wrote a book about it. I'll give it to every one of you. And whether you spoke in tongues or not, I believe God gave you the Holy Spirit. And if you will follow through with what I've talked about, you will start speaking in tongues. And I tell you, this will be the second most important thing that you've ever received from God. It'll be life transforming. Amen? Amen. So we've got Ashley right here. He's the one in the aisle with his hand up, the Brit. Amen. He's a blessing. And if you just follow him, he's got those books. Where are they, Ashley? Where are you going? So anyway, it'd just be one of the classrooms just right down the hall. If you'll go over there, we'll give you that book. And if anybody has a question, there's people that will answer your questions. They'll pray with you and help you any way they can. And it'll only take a minute, but it'll be a blessing. So just follow Ashley, and they'll give you this book. Let's praise God for these. Isn't that awesome? Praise God. I believe this is going to be life-changing. Life-changing. You guys are going to go back home and your wives are going to say, what happened to you? What happened to that man that left home? You'll be different. Thank you, Jesus. You know, I'd like to ask uh, some of our Bible college students here, if you would. I know that many of you may have come with needs and we want to help you and minister to you, whether it's a physical need, a financial, emotional, maybe you are going through 
hardship, some, something happened. And anyway, any way we can to help you. These people have been in school, some of them, at, at least the first year students have been in school for six months. The second year students have been here for two years. Some of them are three years or more. These people are full of the Word of God and they want to help you. If you guys would stand down here and turn around and face the group, this way we can pray for every person in here. I do not have to pray for every person individually. Jesus loves you. And these people, all they're going to do is agree with you. And I mean, they're stronger than horseradish. (laughs) They are wanting to lay hands on someone. So if you want prayer for anything, I'd like to invite you forward right now and let you have one of our students here uh, pray with you. And I believe we're going to see good things happen. If you want prayer, come forward right now and let someone agree with you. The rest of you, I'm going to dismiss you here in a minute, but let these get out of the aisle and make their way up front first. And then I'd like to remind you that we are going to have some fellowship and some food and some things uh, down here. And so please take advantage of those. If you need prayer for anything, come right now. We're going to have somebody stand at the aisles that will direct you towards a person. And that way everybody won't just get on one side. But uh, cooperate and follow these directions. And praise God, we're going to see miracles happen. Remember that we start breakfast at 7 o'clock in the morning. We are going to start at 8.30 sharp giving away some gifts. And I mean, last year they gave away some gifts that I was wanting. These are really good gifts. You need to be here at 8.30 uh, to make sure you're here or you possibly could miss out on getting your name called. Amen. You're welcome to stay in here and pray with us, but we've got fellowship and food and snacks and things back here. So you're dismissed. We'll be back in the morning, 7 o'clock for breakfast, 8.30 for the first service. You're dismissed.